Welcome to episode three of The Kentucky Lawyer. I'm Brad Clark, a criminal defense and DUI lawyer based in Lexington, Kentucky. Every month, I interview a different Kentucky attorney about how they got started, what's going on in their practice, and how they plan to stay on top in the ever-competitive practice of law. Every episode is approved for one hour of Kentucky CLE credit absolutely for free. Details are available at kylawshow.com. Today, I'm interviewing the Honorable Judge Julie Kalin of Jefferson County District Court. Julie was elected to the bench two years ago and has presided over juvenile, criminal, small claims, and probate cases. Prior to taking the bench, Judge Kalin worked as a personal injury attorney, a public defender, and in private practice doing criminal defense. She's also taught trial practice at the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law and has been a two-time speaker at the KBA Annual Convention on Criminal Law Topics. Here's my interview with Julie. Okay, Julie, tell us a little bit about your practice and how you got started. Well, right now my practice is um, not a legal practice. I'm a judge right now in Jefferson District Court. Um, so the, you know, it's definitely not the same as a practice where you're advocating for clients. It's very, very different from that. Um, but I've only been on the bench about two years. And prior to that, I was in private criminal defense practice for 10 years. And before that was a public defender for about five years. And before that had a very brief stint as a PI attorney that was not for me. Um, so my, my practice before becoming a judge was all criminal defense with some EPO or IPO hearings thrown in here or there, usually when they were connected to a criminal case. Um, and it was all over the board. I always told people I would do anything from speeding to murder. So it was across the board and in state courts and in federal courts. And I absolutely loved it uh, and would go back to it in a heartbeat um, if I wasn't a judge. Awesome. Tell us a little bit about that decision to become a judge. Why did you decide to switch over from this practice you loved to being a, a district court judge? Well, for one thing, I wasn't worried about losing. And I think that that's really important for a lot of attorneys. You know, you get really tied up in the notion of how badly you people want to be a judge. Um, and for me, it was kind of like, if I win, great. And if not, well, I have a job that I love. I haven't lost much because I know I wasn't going to spend a lot of money. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to ask my friends and family to tie up every one of their weekends. That wasn't the type of campaign that I wanted to run. Uh, and so I, I went into it knowing that if I lost, it would be okay. And I would still be very happy in my work. Um, and I also knew that I was going to give it my all, um, but that I was not going to run the type of campaign that I had always seen run. Um, and that is goes right into why I wanted to do it. For one thing, um, as a defense attorney, you are constantly in front of judges that were former prosecutors and never served as a defense lawyer. Or maybe they did like, you know, a one year stint as a public defender, which is important. Don't get me wrong. But when you look at the balance of the bench, it is overwhelmingly former prosecutors. So I thought it was very important to get diversity of experience on the bench, if at all we could. And um, and also, I felt like if I were there campaigning, I would be able to push the conversation in a more progressive direction than I could if I were not campaigning and not showing up at all of these events and asking questions or answering questions in a certain way. And so I felt like we, regardless of whether I succeeded in the campaign, simply being there running um, helped along the conversation and helped people think about things in a new way and talk about more progressive reforms that I believe in. Yeah. So what are some of the ways that as a district court judge, you can help, you know, effectuate some of those reforms that you're talking about? The number one way is with bail. Uh, you know, in Kentucky, we have fought with bail reform for so many years, I would say decades at this point. And every time there seems to be momentum to make real change, uh, by the time it gets to Frankfurt and through the committees and ultimately turned into a bill, uh, it is watered down almost to the point of being unrecognizable from where it began. And that that's still happening, frankly. Um, so 
you know, as a judge, you have a lot of options available to you through Kentucky law. So, for example, we can set surety bonds. We have the pretrial risk assessment to look at. Um, we can set unsecured bonds. The laws have made it so that judges have a lot of options. What the laws have not ever done is gotten to the point of limiting judicial options in a way that forces progressive bail reform. So we have a system where they say you have all of these options available to you. We're going to give you this really good pretrial risk assessment tool. But at the end of the day, you can do what you want. And what that has resulted in is everyone doing what they've always done. So, you know, you have a few outlying um, counties or judges here or there where they're willing to dig into this and make hard decisions and use the pretrial risk assessment tool the way it was intended to be used, um, get creative with surety bonds or unsecured bonds or monitored release conditions in the, in the same way that federal court does, frankly, federal court does a much better job of it than state court does it as far as looking at what options are available to return someone who has not been convicted um, to the community rather than just setting a cash bond and keeping them in jail, which is a much easier thing to do as a judge to just set a high cash bond and know that that person is no threat to the community and go about your day. Um, but it is in my opinion, neither the legal nor the right thing to do. Right on. So just to kind of respond to that a little bit, I guess, for our listeners, you know, I'm a criminal defense practitioner, so I, I see these bail decisions day in and day out. And, and you did too, both in private practice as a public defender and now on the bench. But in the federal system, you know, basically decisions are made whether or not to detain a person or to release them. And you know, regardless of if that decision is made that you're a flight risk or you're a danger to the community, you can be detained and no amount of money gets you out of, out of jail. Whereas in our state system, unless you're charged with a capital murder offense, you're entitled to some form of monetary release. And what I've seen, and I think that you agree with this, I think this is kind of implicit in what you've already said, is that, you know, if you are rich enough, no matter how bad what you did, you can get out of jail in state court. But if you are so poor that you can't afford $500, sometimes even $250, $100 for some, something extremely petty, you're stuck in jail. And, yeah, absolutely. And that's really, I think, I think that's the real injustice of it. And, and I'm not sure that, and I, and I think that there's real merit to that federal system as far as, you know, both sides of it, you know, trying to release people on non-financial conditions, having this presumption of release and then, uh, you know, detain. And then also, I think that there's nothing wrong with if someone is truly a flight risk or a danger to the community, detaining them. And I think that. Yeah, absolutely. But um, but there's no way to do that in the state system currently unless they're charged with a capital offense, like you said. And it's, you know, I personally really admire the way that federal court does it. I think that it's very smart um, the way that they have offenses categorized as, you know, detain or not detain the presumption shifts depending on the charge. So, you know, if you're charged with um, maybe a small theft in federal court, the presumption will be that you will not be detained. And then the government has the burden, if they think that the person should be detained, to prove to the judge why there aren't conditions under which the person can remain in the community safely and without being a flight risk. And then conversely, there are other charges uh, like we dealt with where, you know, maybe it's a serious sex crime where the presumption is detention, but the defense can present evidence. Uh, and if it's compelling to the court that they can be maintained in the community without being a flight risk or a danger, then they can be released. And of course, they have a lot more resources, I would say, than state court does with regards to hands on monitoring, tracking computer use. Um, you know, having probation officers essentially supervising people. And then that gets into other things that maybe aren't so great that I think that they do. But that initial system of detain or not detain and rebut a presumption, I think is a very smart way to do it. And instead, we just leave a whole lot of discretion to judges to set kind of, I wouldn't say arbitrary, yes. but, you know, financial well, bonds that yeah, you know, the Very thing great. is, if somebody's charged with murder and their bond is set at 500000 
that's a great bond if they're poor and you don't want them to get out of jail. That is a very um, you know, logical bond if you think the person is too dangerous to be released and you know they don't have a bunch of money. If they have a bunch of money, what's the point of that bond really? Sure, they've got the money, you know, certainly they might want to have an incentive to get their money back. But I feel like I am constantly saying in bond arguments, um, you know, to the prosecution, you think this is a reasonable bond because you know they cannot post it. If you they were presenting evidence that their bond was seventy five thousand and they had a hundred thousand in the bank, my hunch is you'd be saying seventy five thousand isn't appropriate. Um, and it may be that the that the dollar amount even is appropriate, but. I don't think anyone on the prosecution side in a case like that believes that such a person should be released without any sort of um, GPS monitoring or reporting to the court system. You know, that bond is only reasonable if they think the person can't afford it. So there are many times where a bond may be set at, say, 100,000 and the prosecutor is asking to increase it and the defense lawyer is asking to decrease it. And I may convert it to a surety, but add home incarceration and or other conditions because just that monetary amount to me is just, you know, it's so, like you said, arbitrary. And if it were a rich person, nobody would think it was an okay bond if they're charged with murder. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you just, I just see it in my practice, you know, jurisdictions will say, well, it's trafficking. So it's $25,000. Every it's, you know, robbery. So it's $10,000, which <laughs> yeah. I don't think that makes any sense in, in, in itself, but, um, yeah. Absolutely not. It has to be based on the particular person's circumstances, but that like many things is, is one of those things where, you know, different jurisdictions get into, into practices and get into the habit of doing things so much that it almost becomes like a default rule when in fact there is no basis in the law for it. It's just what they've always done. Right. And I guess you talked about pretrial risk assessments a little bit for our our audience that aren't criminal practitioners. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how that influences your, you know, decision-making as a judge and under the law? Yeah. Pretrial risk assessments certainly didn't begin in Kentucky, but I do think that they um, got traction here and began to be used here a lot earlier than some other places. And Kentucky, you know, kind of used to be on sort of the cutting edge of bail reform and we've just sort of lagged behind since around the time that these risk assessments started. But the point of the pretrial risk assessment is to help a judge make a decision about Um, whether this person is a flight risk and whether or not they are a risk for committing another crime while out on bail. And technically, logistically, the way that that works is John Doe gets arrested. And when John Doe gets booked into the jail, pretty soon thereafter, he's going to meet with a pretrial officer. The pretrial officer is going to gather his criminal record from inside Kentucky and from around the United States. They're going to ask them where they work, how long they've worked there, where did they work before that, where do they live, how long have they lived there, who do they live with, do they have someone willing to put up a surety bond, which is a promise to pay rather than actual money being put up. Um, So, you know, they get, they, they use a risk instrument tool, which provides a, a, a set of scores for defendants. And those um, scores are accumulated based on data that is shown to be a good indicator of whether or not a person is going to come back to court and whether or not they are going to commit another offense while out on bond. So it's all based in research and data from decades of um, studying rather than simply a hunch and, you know, what what does a judge feel? Um, This is an actual real data that shows what factors contribute to a person's likelihood to come back to court and stay out of trouble. And so a judge, when reviewing bond, receives this pretrial report uh, or can, they don't have to look at it, but they can receive this pretrial report that has two scores on it. One score is uh, how likely is this person to flee from court? And the higher it is, the more likely they are to flee and not come back to court. 
The second score is how likely is this person to commit another offense? And again, the higher it is, the more likely they are to commit another offense while out on bond if they were to be released. So you can look at those scores and it'll help you make a decision. And then the report also includes the information that I said that they ask about, about where do you live? You know, where do you work? Who do you live with? And, and in a lot of jurisdictions, when a judge sets an initial bond, it's not at arraignment, it's via phone. So if I'm, if it's my turn to be on call and I'm the on call judge, then three times during that day, I will get a phone call from one of those pretrial officers and they will read to me the person's name, what they've been charged with and what their scores are. And then I can ask questions. So, you know, like, what does the narrative of the citation say? Basically, what are the accusations against this person? You've told me the charges, but tell me what the actual report says. And then I also can say, and this is usually how I say it, what does the report say about live work surety? Or I'll just say, what's it say about live work surety? Because that to me is important information. Um, you know, whether or not a person has a surety even to me is important. Do they have someone who's willing to say, yep, I'll, I'll promise that they'll come back to court. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Something I read about in um, some of the, an article about you, uh, or maybe it was an interview with you when you were running for judge was that you found that your, your time, your almost five years as a public defender was really formative in if in you know affecting your perspective can you talk a little bit about that about what it was like being a public defender and and how that affected you yeah uh, you know i remember when i was campaigning once someone asked me something about that and i said being a public def defender literally changed the composition of my being and it really did because it just opens your eyes so much to the truths of the system that Nobody else really gets to know that intimately and particularly in regards to bail reform and how it shaped my opinions on bail reform. And I'm, I'm sure you've had this experience, too, but I had, um, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of clients who sat in jail on a five hundred dollar bond or a thousand dollar bond for months because they didn't know anyone that had that money. If anybody they knew had that kind of money, they needed it for bills. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, they were probably trying to pay for rent for eight people um, under one roof. You know, there was that kind of money was just impossible to, to conceive of just happening to have available for purposes of storing with the court for a while. And so not only was there the bad effects of remaining in jail when they have not been convicted of anything. Uh, but it was often for things like trespassing. You know, I had so many clients as a public defender who were charged with trespassing at a public housing um, complex when they were legitimately going to see their cousin and I would call their cousin and their cousin would say, yes, I live here. They, I knew they were coming over. They had every right to be here. And then I have to go to my client and say, you know, I really think that this is a great case for trial. Would you like to sit in jail for six more months while we wait for your trial? Or would you like to plead guilty and get out today? And, you know, that's <laughs> for a lot of people. Uh, they're not going to choose to sit in jail for six more months. And who can blame them? And they think, you know, it's, it's a trespassing charge. It's not something serious. They're not so concerned about that being on their record that they don't want to accept the offer. But then, of course, the next time they get stopped by the police, they've already got one charge on their record. And then that might make their score go up when they go to the jail. And then their bond might be a little bit higher the next time. It's just this very um, consuming system where, there are were not a lot of good choices for a lot of people who had not done very bad things if they had done anything bad. Yeah, no, one situation I can remember is that this still this is the law today. If you get stopped for driving on a suspended license and you plead guilty to driving on a suspended license, it suspends your license further. And then if you don't pay your fine for driving on the suspended license, well, you can't drive to work. But you get caught driving to work so you can pay right. your fine. 
you get another charge of driving on a suspended license, which actually carries jail time. It's a misdemeanor. Yes. Yeah. And, and it can prevent you from getting expungement down the road. Prevent you from getting an expungement. <laughs> it can prevent you from, it makes your insurance go up. And so it's going to be harder to get insurance. So next thing you know, you, you just let your license expire. And now all of a sudden you can't get insurance. Your license is suspended and you have these fines you can't pay and you get put in jail for not paying those fines. And it's just yep. really minor stuff like that. Kind of the byproducts of poverty uh, that create this great injustice. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily intentional that anybody intended it, but it's the unintended consequences of what seems like a good policy. Like, of course, like we want people to keep their license in force. And of course we want them to have insurance and we want them to pay their fines. But uh, for a lot of people, it just makes the situation worse. It's just a spiral. Right. And, you know, say you go to jail because you owe $300 and then the judge says, you know, just let them serve a few days. Well, now taxpayers are paying to house this person so that they can somehow, quote unquote, work off this money that they owe. And of course, data also shows us that a lot of people lose their jobs for being in jail from one to three days. So it just is compounding the problem on top of itself over and over in these micro ways that um, really just make it very difficult for someone to get a fair shake in the system. And in pretrial release, I think is important, you know, just in any kind of case too. I mean, we, we can make these examples of these relatively minor things, but even in more serious cases, the defendant having the opportunity to get out and, and seek treatment to, you know, absolutely mitigate what they've done, you know, whether it be through counseling or making restitution, like those are yeah. huge opportunities that people that can afford to post bond have that people that can't post bond don't. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we certainly are not living in a system where anyone could, with a straight face, advocate that a person can get meaningful treatment in custody. We know it's not happening. Absolutely. Um, now, you, I want to switch gears a little bit. Now, you don't just do criminal dockets as a I district judge. Yeah, now I do. Um, I'm currently in a two-year rotation where I will only be doing criminal cases, which I just started but I have also been in juvenile court and probate court. And really, you know, we all are supposed to be able to switch around as needed to offer coverage in other courts. So I've had a little bit of dabbling in all of the courts, mental inquest, um, you know, small claims, evictions. Um, I did a lot of evictions court during the pandemic, which I know we're still in, but we just shifted from one rotation to another. So, yeah, there have been other courts I've been in, but certainly criminal is my first love and I'm glad to be back there. But it's been really interesting to see the other courts. Yeah. T tell me a little bit about that. I mean, was it difficult to pick up probate? I mean, coming from I mean, did you ever have a probate case when you were in private practice? Never, never, ever once stepped foot in probate court as a private practitioner. Um, and same for small claims and evictions um, and probate. I was dreading. I thought it was going to be like watching paint dry, but I actually really enjoyed it. Uh, there are, you know, in district court, if, if a case is a really big case and there's millions of dollars involved, more than likely it's going to end up in circuit court and I'm not going to be dealing with it. There's there are a few exceptions. But for the most part, you're dealing with families who are just trying to navigate how do we follow these probate laws in a way that allows us to get this behind us. Uh, and so it really gives you an opportunity to, to help people. And I really liked that part of it. That's really good. Um, so I guess I, I didn't understand this. In Jefferson County, you all do rotations for certain types of dockets. Is that, do you, do you get to like rank your choice or like, how does, you do. how does that That's work? exactly how we do it. You rank your choice. And, and the reason for it, because honestly, I would much prefer a system that more mirrors circuit court in the sense of there are 17 district court judges in Louisville, just split up all the cases among the 17 of us. Let me have some criminal, some eviction, some probate, but that is not plausible uh, for several reasons one of which is criminal defense lawyers and prosecutors have enough hard time covering 10 dockets, much less running around 17 dockets, plus getting to the other courts they need to be at, which could be in another county, could be in another courthouse across the street. It's just too much. Uh, the other thing is that 
there are a lot of benefits to centralizing things like traffic court, evictions court. You know, you have one clerk that knows all there is to know about the paperwork in that court. Um, and so it's a lot, it's district court is a bit of a sausage factory. And you wouldn't run a sausage factory where each employee was doing 17 things. You know, it just doesn't make sense to do it that way in district court. I think that's interesting. I don't know if any other county actually divides it up that way. And in, in Fayette County, where I practice primarily, um, Lexington, the d- district judges work like circuit judges. Like they will do, they will have a day where they do prelims and, and pretrial conferences and they will have an arraignments and then they'll have a day when they do probate and a day when they do small claims and, and all that. And I, I didn't really realize that, but it, I, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it could be done. It would just make it very difficult for the clerks, litigants and attorneys. And it's just not really worth it. So I guess for your next two years, you'll be doing preliminary hearings, pre-trial conferences and arraignments and trials and motion hours and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Competency hearings, a lot of those. Uh, yeah. Just anything criminal back to anything from speeding to murder. <laughs> so one of the other things that you talked about when you were running for judge was how you wanted to adopt more technology to help the process. Um, have you had any, any, I mean, obviously we've all adopted zoom on some level, but can you talk about some of the things that you've tried to do or, or, or what's going on? Uh, well, um, <laughs> you know, I would say that, uh, it has not been easy. Um, now when I was running and I talked about, uh, improving the use of technology, at that point in time, there was no coronavirus on the horizon. And um, I was thinking very largely about e-filing, um, other ways that a lawyers can get things done in district court without physically coming to the courthouse. At one point, there was a system in place where lawyers could email the clerk's office to add a case onto the docket. That was very helpful for attorneys on both sides of the aisle. And that seems to have fallen away. I don't think that they can do that anymore. Um, But e-filing is really not used in Jefferson County, like you in district court. You know, in circuit court as an attorney, I could e-file anything. And I could in district court as well, but I knew that the judge would not see it if I e-filed it. Because the only thing that would happen if you e-filed it was that the clerk would print it out and put it in the file. And then, of course, the judge doesn't see that file until the day of court. So if I ever e-filed something in district court, I knew I also needed to hand deliver it or mail it directly to the parties because no one was using e-filing. So they would not see the notification that something had been e-filed. And and luckily, we are literally just within the last month getting to where we are using e-filing in criminal district court. And it has been very, very helpful. So that's good. But the system is extremely slow to adapt to technology in my experience in the last two years and particularly in the last 11 months. Um, It's been really frustrating to see how far behind we are on things and even small things like there's not um, a calendar system in place to make sure all of the courthouse computers have been um, checked for updates. You know, just little things like that, that um, you would find in most businesses, you do not find in the court system. How has Zoom impacted being a judge? Well, (laughs) um, a lot of people hate it. I will say that a lot of judges hate using Zoom and I don't, nobody loves it. Nobody says, you know, I can't wait to get up in the morning and go hold court on Zoom. Uh, It's a lot less effective than being in person and speaking to a person, you know, with them physically with you in the room. Uh, But it's also a lot better than only hearing their voice, in my opinion, you know, giving them the option of being able to see the judge and have the judge see them, I think is very important. One of the things that we um, struggled with in the beginning was how do you preserve the record? 
you know, if you're on court on Zoom, how do you ensure that you're preserving the oral and hopefully video record of Zoom court proceedings? And a lot of people just didn't really want to figure that out and found that it was easier to just be in the courtroom, run Zoom in the courtroom and record it to the built-in audiovisual system there in the courtroom. I did not want to be inside the courthouse and add to the number of bodies inside the building when I didn't need to be. Uh, so then we had to figure out, okay, well, you know, if I'm recording from Zoom, how do we ensure that that gets uh, to the clerk's office or that they are involved in the recording in some way, in a way that makes it okay to preserve the record that way, which was actually not very difficult at all. Um, but, you know, depending on who you are, it may seem more like a mountain than a molehill. <laughs> Right on. Do you think that we'll continue to use Zoom after the pandemic subsides or do you think that this is just a, a passing fad? I would love to say that I think that people have gotten used to using it and that it's very convenient for things like motion hour and that it will continue to be used. However, my understanding is that only one of our circuit judges of 13 is using Zoom and the rest are using phone teleconference. And I can't imagine people preferring to stay on phone conference, although maybe they would. Um, and it just seems to me that there are an awful lot of stakeholders who are still very reluctant to use the technology, do not appreciate it at all, um, and, and are, you know, they have a goal to get back in person exactly the way things used to be. Um, and so I don't know. I, I, I hope that there is very serious conversation about how can we use this technology that we've all become accustomed to using um, in a way that helps litigants. Like, for example, traffic court. You know, how much easier is it for a person to call or Zoom in for their speeding ticket court date than it is for them to come downtown, find a parking spot, get physically inside the courthouse, wait around to talk to somebody. It's just, you know, the benefits to regular people, in my opinion, are great. And um, it would be um, a real disservice to the public if we just went back to doing things exactly how we did them before. That doesn't mean that I think we won't. We very well may, but we shouldn't. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I agree. I actually, I really like Zoom for a lot of things. Um, we're recording this on Zoom. This makes this possible. Um, yeah. And it makes it possible for me to help clients in, in more geographic locations too. Like I'm more yes. likely to take a case that's an hour away if I know I'm going to be able to Zoom into everything but motions and trial. Then yep. if I have to drive down there, you know, if I have to make five, 10 trips to get the discovery, um, just to sit there for two hours and even Absolutely. we've got, we've got, you know, we can do email on our phones or take our iPads or, or whatever now, but it's still not the same as being able to stay at the office. I'm, I actually find myself, you know, looking for work to do sometimes now because it's just so much more efficient and also because, well, nobody's having any trials, but you know, that's. Yeah, no, but really and truly, you know, for defense attorneys, particularly, um, it really means that you, your schedule becomes a lot more open for things like setting hearings or um, status conferences because, you know, on a day that normally maybe you would have been on the road for four hours, now three and a half of those hours are going to be free. Absolutely. You, know, so you can really work in a lot more in a day. And you can pass those, those time savings on back to the client and more people right. can afford to access attorneys. And that's, you know, I think very important. Um, yes, totally agree. What's one thing you wish you'd known when you began your career? I think that when I began my career, you know, you come out of law school and you're so over law school and at the same time ready to take on the world. But you have a most people have a pretty specific plan in place as far as a vision of what they expect their career to look like, uh, what field they want to go into, what type of law they want to practice, what type of firm, if a firm they want to be with. And I think that 
a lot of people get kind of hung up on the notion of, you know, having a five-year plan or a 10-year plan when in reality, like a lot of other jobs, um, there are more options available than you might think. And I think that I wish I had known coming out of law school that I didn't need to stress so much about making sure things happened in a certain order and by a certain time and having a certain trajectory because it didn't work out that way. And it's been totally fine. But, um, you know, I spent a lot of time giving myself grief about not accomplishing things in the order that I thought I would or doing the type of law I thought I would. And it was really unnecessary. You can be very satisfied your, your, your desires can change. What you want to practice can change. Your, um, your life can change in ways that you have to adjust your practice. And it's a lot more flexible than I think people um, feel that it is. What it sounds like to me is that you've been very persistent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, once I became a public defender, it was like everything clicked. It was like, this is obviously what I want to do. Um, but I never would have gotten there if I had stuck with what I thought I wanted to do when I got out of law school. Right on. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours, say run for district judge after 10, 15 years of practice? What would you, what would you tell them? First of all, I hope that they wait until they have 10 or 15 years of practice. Uh, don't rush into it. Just because there's a two-year minimum doesn't mean two years makes you a good judge. That would be my first advice. Do not presume that you're ready to be a judge just because you've met the minimum experience requirements. Um, that's, it's very frustrating to me that the experience requirement is so low. I also don't think it should have been changed as an amendment, but um, that is, that would be the first thing I would tell them is get a lot of experience. Um, the other thing I would tell them is unless things change, you better be willing to either spend a lot of time campaigning or a lot of money campaigning. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, the truth of it is that most people um, need a lot of money to campaign, especially if they're campaigning against someone who has a lot of money. Uh, I actually had a, um, a woman that I used to babysit. So she'd say, say she's about 15 years younger than me. And she was in college and looking, going to law school. And she emailed me and said, I want to be a judge. What do you think I should do? And, you know, it was hard not to laugh almost because it's like, you don't know that. You have no idea you want to be a judge yet, first of all. Um, second, you don't go to law school to be a judge. You need to be a good lawyer before you can ever even think about being a good judge or you're doing a disservice to people. Um, so that, I think that's probably what I would tell someone is like, focus on being a good, well-rounded, kind lawyer first before you think about running for judge. And then also I would tell them that it's not everything it's cracked up to be. Uh, there are times when I have thought, why did I do this? Uh, I miss being an advocate. Um, I certainly have gotten criticism along the lines of people thinking I am still behaving as an advocate, but I try very hard not to. And there are times when you just miss the advocacy part. And it's also a very lonely position because of the rules. There are a lot of people you can't talk to about your cases if you have a particularly heated moment in court with someone you consider yourself friends with, you can't really go and talk to them afterwards about it. Um, you know, certainly you could say something like, I just want you to know I still really like you as a friend or something like that, but you can't talk about the case. You can't go back and talk to them about it later. So it was, it was really kind of lifestyle changing in that way. I wasn't expecting, um, it to be quite as lonely as it has been. And I think that that on the one hand is because as a defense attorney, I feel like in Kentucky, we have such a strong network. Um, so I felt like I was always in camaraderie with my fellow defense attorneys, always had somebody to talk to about what was happening with a case, brainstorm with. And then also um, there just aren't a whole lot of judges that are, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this, that that are like me, you know? Um, so it's, it's lonely on both 
both ways that way. There aren't a lot of people that you ethically can talk to. And then for me in particular, there just aren't a whole lot of people that I feel like come at it from the same perspective. What is one common myth about being a judge that you want to debunk? (laughs) So I think that particularly with regards to district court, um, there is a myth that it's not a lot of work um, or that the judges are lazy and Certainly you could approach it that way. Certainly the hours are not arduous. When you leave for the day, you're done. Um, but it it also should not be that way. Um, you know, I used to have some friends who worked in a certain division of a public defender's office that sort of had a reputation as like where they put you if you didn't, um, didn't do a whole lot of hard work. And Honestly, it wasn't that the job wasn't easy. It was that if you wanted to really do it well, you had to put in a lot of hard work. You could pass, you know, you could get by and seem like an okay lawyer and not do a whole lot of hard work. But if you really want to do the job well, you need to put in a lot of hard work. And I think that that's very true for district court judges um, because like I spend a lot of time reading new opinions and um, reading theory and, um, you know, just trying to keep myself busy in a way that I don't ever feel like I'm totally out of my depth in the courtroom. I don't ever want to get to a point where I feel like, well, I haven't heard about that new case that these lawyers are all talking about. So if you really make an effort to stay on top of it, and then plus with being on call and stuff, it can be a really difficult job but there certainly seems to be an impression that, you know, district court is where you go to, to have an easy job, which it can be if you want it to be, but um, I hope most people don't. (laughs) What's one thing that you see attorneys get wrong a lot in district court? Well, uh, let me first say that one of the most surprising things to me as a judge has been how difficult it is to separate what I would do in a case versus what a defense lawyer is actually doing in a case. I did not expect myself to be so um, not necessarily critical, but like wanting, you know, just kind of judging, I guess judging is the right word, um, how a case was being handled. And, you know, certainly I had my ways of doing things and really prided myself on having great relationships with my clients and, making sure that they understood absolutely every possibility of what could happen when we walk in the door. Uh, And so I found myself easily frustrated when it appears to me that a client and an attorney have definitely not spent enough time together. Um, So that is one mistake I see a lot of is attorneys, rather than saying to their client, here are the 10 different things that could happen when we have court Monday, What they say is, I don't know what's going to happen. And then that's it. And so, you know, when whatever is going to happen happens, the client is taken by surprise. The attorney hasn't explained it to them yet. Um, Whereas if you see somebody who has told their client, here are the 10 things that could happen. And if thing one happens, then this is what we'll do. If thing two happens, this is what the plan is. You know, if you take the time to prepare your client for all of the possibilities as much as you can anyway, it makes a very big difference. Um, So that has been something that I've noticed. And then along those same lines, uh, a lot of attorneys tend to treat district court like they can just come and go as they please. Um, Whereas the rules for entry and withdrawal of appearance apply equally in district court, just like they do in circuit court. So if an attorney makes an appearance on a case, they are the attorney on that case representing that party. Uh, And what you see a lot of time is somebody showing up at the next court date and saying, well, I couldn't afford them anymore. Um, You know, and the attorney just doesn't show up. It it doesn't work that way. This is not a system where once you appear, you get to, to decide when you get out. We have rules in place about this. And I think a lot of attorneys just think, well, it's just district court. And they don't have to worry about those rules, but they apply here too. (laughs) 
Okay, now it's time for our ethical dilemma. Every month I take a few minutes out of each episode to pose an attorney ethics hypothetical for our guest. These hypotheticals are based on Kentucky bar opinions and real NPRE questions. Each segment lasts about 12 to 15 minutes or we try to get 0.25 hours of ethics credit. Listen to all 12 monthly episodes on our podcast in a year and you'll walk away with enough continuing education and ethics credit. Today's hypothetical has to do with attorneys talking to unrepresented parties. Julie, are you ready? I am. All right. Question number one, may an attorney representing a client give advice other than the advice to get an attorney to an unrepresented adverse party? No. All right. (laughs) Why? Because then they are acting as that person's attorney as well and would have to get a conflict waiver. Fair enough. <laughs> why do you why do you think this, this is a good idea that you know we shouldn't have attorneys out there trying to you know talk to the other side about you know what they should do or shouldn't do? Well, you know, obviously the whole point of the fact that they would have to get a conflict waiver is that they would have to discuss with both people the fact that they have a conflict. Uh, when you have a client that you're representing and you're speaking to an adverse party, you should, by virtue of the fact that you have a duty to your client. Um, also have an incentive to want the other side to do X, Y, Z, whatever that is. So your advice may very well be skewed. Um, Maybe it's not, but the person who you're offering that advice to certainly would have to be the one to knowingly make that decision, being fully aware of the biases that you have. And I think this is a pretty obvious one. I think that like most people would know this, but the bar actually came out with this ethics opinion just just last year on this issue. Um, and and I, I have to imagine it was prompted by something. So, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, what they said in the ethics opinion was that in 2009, rule 4.3 was amended and it provides an attorney representing a client may not give advice other than the advice to get an attorney to an unrepresented party. Now, I'm going to ask you a kind of a follow-up question to go into a little bit more detail, maybe talk about the kind of shades of gray here. May an attorney representing a client provide information to an unrepresented adverse party? Uh, Yes, very cautiously, they may. (laughs) (laughs) I I personally would not do it without it being fully recorded somehow. Um, But yes, they could. They would just need to be very careful about it. And and so what's really the difference here between advice and information, if you if you had to say. That's the problem is it's a very fine line, but I think certainly saying um, I have filed a motion that is set to be heard in court next Tuesday at 9 a.m. is different from you should show up and say you don't object to this motion, (laughs) you know. Absolutely. (laughs) Have you ever thought something like this might be going on in a case that you were involved in either as a judge or as an attorney? Um, not as an attorney, because obviously I was always representing someone and the other side was the prosecution. Now, I guess somewhere where it could come up is an EPO or IPO hearings. And I'm sure that other attorneys have experienced this where you fully prepare for this adversarial protective order hearing. You have spent hours learning the life of this relationship and, you know, every text that's gone exchanged between these two and you show up fully prepared to cross-examine um, the the opposing side. And instead they walk in without an attorney and say, you know, can you tell me what happens if I just drop this? And I can't, I can't tell them what happens if they just drop it because that would be giving them advice. Um, I can tell them, you know, you that they could inform the court of that and ask the court that question. Um, but I feel like that's a very, very fun line. And, and what I would say in that situation and did say in that situation is, I'm sorry, but I cannot give you legal advice while serving as the other side's attorney, because that would be a conflict. You know, I wouldn't be doing my best for either of you. It wouldn't be possible for me to do my best for either of you. And so I'm not allowed to do that. But you certainly can talk with your own attorney or there's a legal aid attorney over here or whatever the case may be. Absolutely. Um, And kind of following up on that, on the point you made about, you know, I I think that what you're saying is even more ethical than what the rule requires, like, you know, informing them of legal aid and things like that, because 
the the Supreme Court, the Bar Association, I should say, said in that opinion that a lawyer is not required to volunteer helpful information to the unrepresented adversary unless failure to do so would constitute a misrepresentation. And I think that you make a good point. Um, and, you know, I, I would respect you, you know, more as an attorney for telling them, hey, this person's over here, legal aid that could potentially help you. But from a purely like legal ethics perspective, I don't believe you'd be required to do that. Would you? No, agree with that? and in fact, I th- no, I agree with that. And not only do I think you wouldn't be required to do that, but in fact, if it could hurt your own client, you may be required not to do that. You know, if them having a legal aid attorney could hurt my client, I may not say that at all. Honestly, um, I may just say nothing. You know, it's a, it's really a, such a case by case basis, and. The, the place where I see what your last point with regards to um, unless it would be misleading, you have, you know, you shouldn't you don't have to provide helpful information unless not doing so would be misleading. Where I see that a lot is uh, prosecutors who day in and day out have to deal with pro se defendants. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a huge ABA ruling that came out last year about that that really goes into a lot of different factual scenarios. But I've always thought that must be one of the more difficult um, ethical scenarios just because of how often they have to do it. On the other hand, they are not an advocate necessarily for the state. You know, their interest is in justice, not in um, advocating for a particular client. So on the other hand, their ethical responsibilities are different And when they're dealing with an unrepresented person, um, their duties to that person are different. And I've definitely seen prosecutors go out of their way to actually be helpful to defendants. Yes. Yes. You know, not in not in every case, but um, a lot of times, you know, if it's a serious case or it's something concerning, the prosecutor will just tell them, you know, I can't help you. You know, I'm you know, the other side. But. I've seen several prosecutors say, well, you need to go get this form so your license doesn't get suspended. Or, Absolutely. And Absolutely. I, I respect that. That is the ultimate example of a prosecutor doing justice rather than just trying to win a case or you know get an outcome. It's Yeah, 100 percent. And I'm going to want to go have a drink with or be friends with somebody who behaves that way much more than somebody who tries to gain an advantage over an unrepresented person. Um, in a situation where they don't have to, you know, one place where we see that come up a lot is with these driving without insurance cases, because the law in Kentucky has now effectively changed such that a judge cannot, um, you know, hold a restitution hearing and order someone to pay restitution uh, for a motor vehicle accident just because they were charged with driving without insurance. Nevertheless, we see a lot of um, prosecutors offices for very you know, good reasons. I'm not faulting them for wanting to help uh, accident victims recoup the deductible that they paid or whatever it might be. Um, that's certainly, you know, not a bad goal to want to help people with that. But on the other hand, if they're talking to a pro se person charged with driving without insurance, the ABA rule may um, may be instructive that they have to be upfront with that defendant and say, Although I'm asking you to pay this person back their deductible, I can't force you and the judge can't force you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's a really interesting. And and whenever we talk about the special duties of prosecutors, I think that we have they have one of the harder jobs. Really. Absolutely. Yeah. It, just because just to walk that line. But I mean, ultimately, should it be hard to do justice? No, it shouldn't. They, they have there's I mean, in reality, there are so many different um, players in the justice system that they have to try to appease uh, victims, their own bosses, police officers, the judge, defense attorneys, pro se defendants. It's a lot to balance and I don't envy them, but it also is one of the most honorable professions in the law when done well. Talking about that a little bit about, you know, special duties to victims. Have you seen any impact from the Marcy's Law Amendment so far or has it been pretty quiet? I have not seen anything so far, but I can only imagine that it's coming. Uh, and and um, there have not been a lot of judicial discussions about it that I'm aware of in Kentucky anyway. But personally, uh, I am concerned about it and you know, trying to think forward 
if a victim, you know, requests uh, the rights guaranteed to them in this constitutional amendment that's passed, do we even have the resources to provide them? You know, and what, how does that look? How do I do that? If there is, if there is no money there for that, um, you know, it's, it's a logistical nightmare, frankly. No. And, and I had this come up um, a couple of weeks ago for the first time where I was representing a defendant in a domestic violence case that we resolved for a jail sentence to avoid a, a potential indictment. And the victim came back and approached me after the fact and wanted the defendant released. They wanted me to file for shock probation and they wanted, you know, to advocate yeah. on behalf of it. And so that put me in a very interesting ethical, uh, ethical position yeah. because, you know, this is an unrepresented party I'm dealing with who's not directly adverse because they're, well, they're not a party. I mean, they, they are kind of under Marcy's law, but they're not truly a party. Right. And okay. what they want is, you know, in my client's best, in my client's interest, for sure. And so, um, you know, I went ahead and I, I, I wrote them, I filed the motion and I said, you know, I've spoken with this witness, this victim, and they said, this is what they want. And then I, I got them to the hearing and I, I let them talk and I, I left it at that. And I, I tried to be as even handed as I could. I didn't, you know, push them into doing any of that. I just gave them the information exactly like this opinion says. I said, this is when court is, this is what the Zoom link is. You don't have to do any of this, but if you wanted to, you know, I, I you sure. have a right to be heard now. And, and the judge, I think was a very good judge, judge, well, I don't have to go into it, but, um, and she took it under consideration and she took it under advisement and she's thinking about it. Cause it's a, it's a tough one. And, you know, I felt a little bit conflicted too, because here we had cut this deal with this prosecutor to avoid an indictment where the client was looking at 10 years to 10 to 20 years and to turn around and file this motion and say, well, we want to take it back. We don't really, we didn't really mean it. We want probation now. Yeah. And I had to explain to him, I'm like, I wouldn't have filed this, but for the fact that this person who now has a constitutional right to be heard approached me and asked me to. Yeah. And so, you know, talking about an ethics landmine, I think that we're going to see a whole lot of issues with this Marcy's law play out. And, you know, this is, yeah. And defense attorneys assumed that it was going to be a disaster for us, but I think it's just going to be really complicated for everybody. Yeah. And I think, I honestly think that most prosecutors knew it was going to be disastrous. I, I, most of them that I know were not for it either. Not because they don't truly have a calling to protect uh, victims and the citizens of Kentucky, but because they know that the way that it's written, um, there is neither the money nor resources for it. And a lot of it's duplicitous. But I think that the way that you handled that situation is really um, is really a good case for an example for this ethical issue, because, you know, some other lawyer may have said, sure, let me walk you through how to file the motion. Clearly, you cannot do that. Uh, you could not say, um, you know, well, would you be willing to. Um, let me tell you what I think you should write in a letter about my client. You know, I think that might be crossing the line, but the way that you handled it, I, I, I mean, to me sounds um, completely in line with the ethical rule we were just discussing where, you know, you did not seek out this information. You're simply relaying it to the court. Yeah. And I hope I did it right. Nobody seemed to take offense to it. Sure. it so um, I guess we've got just a couple minutes left. If you could step into my shoes. What would you have asked me that I didn't, or would you have asked yourself that I didn't ask you? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I think maybe I would have asked, you know, what do you like and dislike about being a judge? Cause I think that until you are a judge, you really don't have a good idea of what it's like. It's not like what I thought it would be like. Um, it's a lot more administrative and bureaucracy and, you know, a lot of the day-to-day -day dealings in district court are not um, heavy legal analysis lifting. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, you get to help hundreds of people a week. So um, that's one thing I think that we could, I hope we could have talked for an hour just about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um... So I want you to do something. I haven't asked anybody this yet, but who do you think I should invite to be a guest on this show in the future? Who would you want to see interviewed on the Kentucky lawyer? Chief Justice Menton. Okay. It would be an excellent guest. Um, judge Clayton would be an excellent guest. Our chief judge of our court of appeals. 
Um, let's see. Uh, I think David Niehaus would be a fascinating guest. Absolutely. He'd be a really great guest. Maybe Scott West too. Um, why not Ray Larson? That would make a heck of an entertaining hour, right? I bet he would do it. I bet he would too. Those are my suggestions. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll probably take you up on some of those. Those are all great suggestions. <laughs> That's all the time we have for today. Julie, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Um, oh, thank you. Is there any way that you know people can connect with you online that you'd like to promote or anything like that? Nothing that I would like to promote. I certainly wouldn't want to run afoul of any judicial canons. Um, however, uh, if anyone wishes to see how district court, district criminal court in Jefferson County is running every day, um, you can find my court and a couple of other judges in Kentucky are live streaming at the Kentucky Courts YouTube page. So if you just Google Kentucky Courts YouTube, it'll pop right up. Awesome. That sounds great. Julie, thanks for your time. Thanks, Brad. Well, that's it for episode three. As always, I'm Brad Clark for the Kentucky Lawyer. I'd like to thank everyone for listening, and I encourage you to go get your free CLE credit. Just search for the Kentucky Lawyer on the KBA CLE page or go to kylawshow.com to get the activity code for this episode. If you or someone you know would make a great guest for the show, send me an email at brad at unconvicted.com or find us on Facebook as The Kentucky Lawyer. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you're listening to this in a podcast app. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next month with another great conversation.